Welcome to Unrooted. I'm your host, Julie Hotz. If you're joining us for the first time, a great place to start is episode one. This season of Unrooted is serialized, but if you want to start here too, you'll be okay. Each episode does work as a standalone episode. One note about this episode. There are a few cuss words, so just so you know. Now, on to the show. Last name is Holtz, spelled Henry Ocean Tom Zebra. First name is Julie, John Union Lincoln Ida Edward, middle name Anna. This is me in the back of a highway patrol car. Female, Arizona for status also. But it's not what you think. We're from Jacobs Lake up to the north rim boundary. You get her? Yep. Okay, just make sure you're buckled up. Oh, yes. Thank you for the ride, officer. This was a small moment from when I cycled from Los Angeles to Montana. My last full day in Arizona, I stashed my bike at an inn and hitched in the pouring rain to the north rim of the Grand Canyon because I did not have the energy to make the 90-mile side trip on my bike that day. As I stood there in the rain with my thumb out, a highway patrol officer pulled over, and I quickly tried to remember if it was legal to hitchhike in Arizona or not. Well, I'd see somebody stand in the rain, but... Oh. The good thing is I won't melt. The other good thing is um, I find that it is actually easier to get a ride in bad weather. It is. <laughs> I wouldn't have stopped them. Yeah. I got a ride to the Grand Canyon. For me, movement is a choice, but I want to acknowledge that that's not typically the case. Often, movement is tied to inadequate public transportation. The distance between home and work, eviction, gentrification, deportation, becoming a refugee, or a thousand other instigators. I'm so grateful to be able to move through landscapes, to be able to ask myself whether I'd like to move or not. What a luxury to have the time and capacity to move in these ways. When I left Los Angeles and headed east on I-10, I was honestly excited to be on the road. Here I am talking to a friend on the phone right before I left L.A. It'll be the second time I'm driving cross-country on boring interstate in like two months. (laughs) But I am kind of excited for, like, it would be fun to do the road trip with somebody else. But I, I do enjoy alone time, so I'm kind of excited about just listening to podcasts and audiobooks for a week straight. I was intentionally going from point A to point B, with planned stops along the way. But point B also contained a lot of unknowns. Here I am on the phone again. You know, I really don't know uh, what, you know, New York holds, like how long we'll be there. You know, I really, I have no idea. No idea how long we'll be there or not be there and I've also tried to express like all along I was like you know I'm preparing to move but if all of a sudden you realize you hate this job or if I get out to New York and you've signed the lease already and you hate your job it's okay you can do something else like don't feel like because I'm moving out here or planning to or come out that you have to continue to do a job but you know things are going well and I think that Movement is the home that lets me look for home, ask questions about home, 
ask questions about everything, and also live without having to have all the answers. This is a love letter to movement. In movement, I feel alive. I learn to trust. This is what movement sounds like to me. Trying to remind myself that there's no rules. Turned off the stout at the time. Julie. Julie, Tim. Thanks for the ride. Yeah. So I take it you're. Are you hiking? I'm actually I'm cycling, uh, but when I got. She can get her own plate to help yourself. <laughs> I'm just squatting in the desert in the dark by myself, eating potato chips. I've been pretty physically exhausted on a daily basis. Is it a good view out there? Yeah. I can't open my left eye right now because there's so much salt in it. So it's been very humbling. Yesterday I did my first century. Woo! How are your feet feeling? They feel like they've been flopped around. Like somebody took them and they were just like... <laughs> I was so disappointed to get here 37 minutes after the mercantile closed. I could see the glowing low lights of the refrigerators with cold drinks in them. So when did you get on the road? Where's the like stop button? <laughs> How do we get me out of here now? <laughs> yeah, I hadn't had it in a while until I started the biking and then it was like ice cream bars every day at the gas stations. <laughs> When I have trouble thinking, when I can't focus, if I begin to move, or even if I just go for a walk in my neighborhood or stretch in a corner, those backlogged thoughts begin to flow again. Stillness is so important until it's counterproductive. Movement is the state in which my body meets the speed of my thoughts, like a river that never stops. Like it's so inside my head and my heart that I often feel pretty overwhelmed. But when I'm moving, when my legs are walking, when I'm on a bike and the breeze is blowing across my face, when the landscape whizzes past the front windshield of my car, I'm no longer trudging upriver against the flow of my thoughts. I'm floating and flowing with the thoughts. The rhythm of my steps, the cadence of my breathing, the white noise of the car. In movement, there is all this time and space to sort out and process thoughts and to let the noise fade to silence, to let all that nervous energy dissipate. Me and my thoughts, we can run together. We can travel the road together and talk it out, walk it out. Pain can flow away from my heart into the bottom of my feet and out into the ground, breathed out and away through my lungs. I'm one of those people that prefers to get on a dance floor sober because movement is what intoxicates me. I'm free for a song or two or 10. Through movement, I walked into myself. Walking and cycling across states has made the world bigger and smaller at the same time. It's made borders become even more absurd and made me notice how often I try to limit myself. In movement, my body lurches forward, 
and so does my heart as I put it out into all these vulnerable places. But this freedom of movement comes at a price. It is both a privilege and a risk. I can walk to the top of mountains, but where are all the people I love? How burnt are my lips? How sore is my body? And what am I even doing it for? I can cycle across a country and fill my life experience piggy bank, but what happens to my career or my chance of ever owning a home? How am I helping anyone? I can move across the country for love, but what happens to the places I leave behind? Through movement, everywhere becomes home. Nowhere becomes home. And you feel homesick for everywhere and nowhere at the same time. In movement, I have found some of the greatest freedom of my life. And some of the worst pain. I bet their butts don't hurt as much as mine do. And some of the greatest heartache. I was having a really hard time. In moving from Los Angeles to New York City, I might have been excited about the long days of north and eastbound movement, to have days of solitude, a packed car, and ribbons of road in front of me. But I needed that space to meditate, because this cross-country movement was also bringing me the heartbreak of leaving the West Coast. We'll be right back after the break. It's not a commercial break. Not that many people are listening to the podcast yet. But I'd love it if you can take a moment to rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to the podcast on. It increases the chance of more people finding out about the show. Or do you have a friend who's moving, might be homesick, likes to ask existential questions about home, perhaps has a home, or just loves podcasts? Let them know about the show. I started this episode out with an ode to movement, but I also wanted to talk to someone who's very familiar with it. Um, yeah, I'm in Alaska. It's great. <laughs> this is Marianne Thomas. My name is Mary Ann Thomas. I am a queer brown daughter of Indian immigrants. Marianne is a writer and cyclist. She has cycled all the way across the U.S. and Canada, hitchhiked across large swaths of the country, cycled India from north to south, and she works as a traveling nurse. She knows movement intimately. And I'm currently essentially living out of my car, traveling around the U.S., mostly the Midwest, the West, and right now Alaska, on a kind of a tour to talk about my bike travels around India, where I just spent four months bike touring. When Marianne and I spoke, it was at the end of last summer. So she's no longer on this trip, but she's often going somewhere, or at the very least, she's moving forward in her writing and journey of the self. Which is exactly why I thought she might be perfect to talk to. One note, there were a few times that Marianne dropped out for a second or two while talking on Skype, but I'm sure you can fill in those gaps. The concept of feeling rootless is really interesting to me. Before we talked, I had followed Marianne on Instagram for a while. And through her captions, I saw that she spoke about home in so many ways, including on many of her posts, hashtag brown girl goes home. I've also seen captions of hers that include 
hashtag travel nurse, and hashtag I have no home. Though our stories are different, I saw similar celebrations of movement and questions regarding home. I found a kindred spirit in her writing. I feel like I'm constantly like juggling what going home means. When I came back from India, I spent... This was after her 2017 cycling trip, where she cycled India from north to south. I ended up spending around three, four months in my hometown. Marianne's hometown is Princeton, New Jersey. Which I hadn't lived in in years and felt super unfamiliar. All the, like, maps in my head were gone. If I was trying to go to the grocery store or trying to get around town, I would get lost a lot, and I'd have to, like, pull over on the side of the road and try to remember how these roads connected, which was very disorienting to happen in your hometown. And I happened to meet certain individuals who had kind of lived in the same place their whole life and their parents have lived in the same place and their grandparents have lived in the same place. And like, not only did that give them some sort of access to wealth in that like their aunts and uncles owned homes that they could live out of, but it also gave them kind of a sense of community that I don't think I've ever had. Um, My parents immigrated to the United States before I was born. And my mom's parents, even within Kerala, Kerala is on the southern tip of India. Even within Kerala, migrated from their hometown to a different part of Kerala where they essentially were settling it. Like there was no one living there permanently. They, My mom tells a story about how her brothers had to stay up all night in the trees to watch for wild elephants, like coming and destroying their homes or attacking. And so my mom's family is also like migrant families. I met somebody this spring named Rajiv Mohabir, who is Guyanese, historically Indian descent, and also grew up in Florida. And he talked a lot about home and migration and how his family has, you know, multiple generations has just lived in migration. There's all, they've always migrated. Each generation goes somewhere new. And I think the fact that my family did move before I was born means that that I grew up feeling a little rootless. I mean, I grew up in Jersey, but I don't have like deep ancestral ties to Jersey. And in India, one of the first questions people ask you is where is your ancestral home? Um, And they're not asking you where you live, they're asking you where like your grandparents lived or your grandparents' grandparents lived. And so that was disorienting in, in some senses, but also like made me realize that I like don't have that sense of a ancestral place. Like I think of where my parents came from and they came from different parts of Kerala and I'm like intimately tied to both of those places. And so I don't know, uh, I, I do feel like I'm always looking for home in the places I go. When I flew to Alaska, you know, yesterday, we're landing and I, you know, drove around a little bit, borrowed a friend's car. All of my friends were texting me who live here being like, when do you need to, when do you come in? When do you need a ride? Do you need my car? You know, just like willing to turn over heaven and hell to like make space for me in their lives. And then when I was driving around Anchorage, I I do know how to get around here. Like, this is, for right now, this is one of the places where I have the most friends and where the maps do still live in my head and where I know how to get around. And yeah, I don't know. I feel like I'm constantly like juggling what, what going home means. 
Yes, that's the second time you've heard that line, because it's so real. The more you move, the more balls it seems you're juggling. While growing up, Marianne and her family would go to India often to spend time with family. So my grandma lived with us for 10 years. She came to the U.S. when I was two, and she went back when I was 12. So when she went back, my dad made a pretty, pretty strong commitment to taking care of her. He built a home in Kerala, uh, which took years of building like this dream home where she could be any time that we were there. So we would go, we would go and spend a month or six weeks. Uh, some, my dad would spend sometimes six weeks there, um, just so that my Amachi, which is what I call my grandma, so that Amachi could stay in that home. There are a couple things that I think were like super important about doing that every year. I don't think I ever thought of it as going home. Like every year we would see different people. We would make this trip to my mom's family's home, which was like an eight hour, 10 hour rumbling drive. The roads are horrible. In the summer, which is monsoon season, which meant that a lot of the roads were flooded. And like Kerala is making the news right now because it's like having the worst flooding in a century. Pretty much every every summer the roads would flood to some extent. And so a lot of what I remember from that is just like pushing car the car out of a ditch. <laughs> and always being like, oh, okay, like there will be some logistical difficulty here. Um, and then getting to my mom's family's house and they're like, they've been waiting for us all day and it's nighttime and they're literally carrying torches to guide us from the car to their home. And a lot of my mom's family especially didn't have electricity. So a lot of the memories I have from that are like sitting in the dark with my cousins and like, I can't understand anything anyone's saying, but just like watching my cousins interact with such joy and light. So I guess part of what I think about when I think about that is also like finding home and being like completely different, knowing that I wasn't understanding anything (laughs) and being okay with that. Like from a young age, I like understood that like I don't need to understand everything that's going on to appreciate people or to have a smile on my face or to like exist there. There's a pressure to try to understand. And like, I still want to learn Malayalam and I'm hoping that in the next few years I can like spend some more time learning Malayalam. Um, But I think when I was young, it was just like, okay, I don't understand this. Like I have to deal with being in a place where I can't understand anything. I also remember those long drives and remember this desire to never get there that when we would get to the destination, that's when these social dynamics that I don't understand would start, or that's when I would have to like perform for my family or like act nice or try to try to speak Malayalam and like fumble through sentences and like be really awkward or like have to ask where the toilet is or whatever it was. So I remember being in cars and just being like, the car is more socially comfortable. Like I remember always like closing my eyes and being like, I hope this car ride never ends. I hope, you know, I hope this lasts forever. And that that feeling of like, oh, it's the journey, not the destination. That existing for me in every moment of the journey of like loving the plane ride and being like, I hope this plane ride never ends. <laughs> and then like being in cars and like, I hope this never ends because that felt almost more comfortable. 
But for most of the year, Marianne was in her hometown of Princeton, New Jersey. Princeton, I always say, has more ice cream shops than bars. (laughs) Wait. That sounds like heaven. How have I not been to Princeton, New Jersey? I love ice cream. Yeah, and I love ice cream, and I worked at one of them. (laughs) The library, which I basically feel like I was raised in the library. Like, my parents worked super long hours and didn't come home till 7 or 8. So if I missed the bus, I was told to just hang out in the library till they got off work. And then, yeah, and then they were like, there's an ice cream place right across from that library. There's an ice cream place two blocks from the library. So I'd spend a lot of time in both of those. My family home is like right on the outskirts of town. So Princeton, we always thought of as a donut almost. The donut hole is like the town. And then the township spans out a little bit further. And I was like right on the edge of the donut. But between town and where I lived, there there's a giant lake behind my house, past our backyard, across a fence was a park that we, you know, we'd like I'd like jump the fence to go to the park and meet my friends. Across from that park is a bunch of woods. So a lot of my friends and I would just like walk around the woods and talk about stuff, like hiking before we knew what hiking was. <laughs> um, yeah. 10-year-old Marianne might say that home is her backyard playing kickball with her brothers. (laughs) Marianne has also talked about the unique environment she grew up in because she had access to so much of the Princeton University campus. A lot of my peers were also like kids of people who, you know, their parents worked at the university or for whatever reason they were tied to the university. And so there was just a very strong, like, activist bent to my friend group and to a lot of the high school, I think. You know, there are definitely, like, racial and economic, uh, like, lines, literal lines of, like, oh, this is where, like, Black folks live in town or this is where Latinx folks live in town um, that we talked about in our school. So, like, our history classes would talk about the racial dynamics of our town, Um, which I think was maybe pretty unique. I don't know that, like, everybody's openly talking about that in their schools. I was thinking back on my friend circle there, and I was realizing that, like, most of the kids I rode the bus with were kids of immigrants, whether from, like, Germany or (laughs) the Philippines or wherever. But I think that it's, like, interesting. I I was talking to my little brother about this and we were talking about how like we're drawn to other people who have felt like apart in some way, whether that's because they are like not, if they're not white or whether they're queer or whatever, it's just this feeling of like, oh, we're all like misfits and we've never belonged. And so like, where is our, our group of misfits who we can like, and that just feeling of being apart. When I was in college, I was mostly hanging out with punks and artists, and I was like, couldn't really adequately blend in as a punk or an artist, you know? Um, But like, those were the people who they also felt apart in some way. Um, And so I was more drawn to them. Early on, in the midst of college, was when Marianne began traveling with her friends, or solo. That summer, summer after freshman year, I took a train out to California with four friends, maybe. And 
we spent like, I know I'm going to mess up the time scales, but we spent like two months maybe just being in San Francisco and pitching a tent on at the Albany Bowl and just, you know, like, like putzing around San Francisco and the Bay Area. And then maybe this was after a month, a couple of them left. And then the ones who stayed and I, we did a little bit of travel. We did a couple multi-day hikes. Uh, And this is again, like I think at the time, I didn't think of them as hikes. It was just like, oh, like we could walk from San Francisco across the Golden Gate Bridge and just get on a trail. Like I've never heard of this before. Like, let's just try it. And just, you know, we were stuffing like Walmart sleeping bags (laughs) into our you know, cheapo backpacks and like sleeping with no tent just in like cow pastures. And then we, at that point, like hitchhiked up the coast to Arcata and then down the coast to Santa Cruz. So not super long stretches, but just spending time with no plan. And then I took a train to Salt Lake City and then from Salt Lake City hitched from there to Jackson, Wyoming, where I had a college friends, and then from Jackson to Denver, from Denver down to Taos, where another friend was. I spent like a week in a homeless shelter because I was just like, I don't, I'm sick of traveling and I don't want to keep struggling to find a place to stay. Maybe it wasn't a full week, maybe it was three days. But I remember just being like, I don't want to keep thinking about where I'm going to be every night. And I'm so sick of traveling. (laughs) Um, And I didn't have a plane ticket until a couple days later. So I remember I like asked somebody on the street, like where a homeless shelter was and found one. And it was just like, so like I to travel very intentionally now. And I try to be going places for a reason. And I look back on that version of myself and I'm just like, I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. (laughs) This is the strange thing about movement. Sometimes you find yourself in motion and then you realize you don't know where you're going. Later, it's weird to think back on hitchhiking because I feel like it was was pretty irresponsible and not well thought out. (laughs) Um. If you haven't already figured this out, I love hitchhiking. But I'm also careful about when and how I do it. Movement is inherently risky, but it can be inherently rewarding. Figuring out how fast, far, and frequently to move is the never-ending experiment and learning opportunity. I also think that there's something about that, about those hitchhiking experiences that did teach me a lot about, like, people. And I, you know, I was never harmed when I was hitchhiking. Everyone was, like, an older white man who, like, were like, oh, you remind me of my daughter. I don't want my daughter to be out here and unsafe. Or, like, they'd give me food or water. They were just, like, genuinely caring people who wanted me to get to where I was going. Um, So it, like, did develop my faith in humanity a little bit and also kind of helped me unlearn things like when you're self-camping on a bike um, and you have to rely on people or you have to rely. It's hard to say you have to rely on people, but I think people not harming you is a form of relying on people. Like I'm relying on these drivers not to like run me over every day. I'm relying on people to not come into my camp and try to disrupt them. That's a form of like trusting people that I learned from traveling in a very irresponsible way. (laughs) Maybe that's what I love about movement. Movement is faith. And faith is moving forward into uncertainty. 
and really exposing too. It's like, oh, like who am I trusting here? I don't know them, but I don't know. It's worked out well for me. I have had like shockingly few bad incidents. If like nothing extremely bad, knock on something. But <laughs> I don't know. I think, I don't know. I think like worse things have happened when I'm in one spot. <laughs> like you know like home is not a safe place if if home is new york city and like so like anything can happen at any time or home is not a safe place if, like, the shootings that happen all over this country right now yeah like it's a it's a tricky thing to consider what safety is it's mostly an illusion and it's mostly like whatever fears are built in your head. Marianne got into bike touring when she went with a dozen friends who biked 60 miles to a friend of a friend's house. The trips only escalated from there. I asked Marianne when her bike really began to feel like home. So I biked from New Jersey to Nashville with a friend from my hometown who is also like daughter of Indian immigrant. This was her first big cycling trip. And we biked across Appalachia. <laughs> across Pennsylvania, which was like, for me, I was like, I'm never doing something that hard ever again. Like across Appalachia is not fun. It's very steep. It's very steep. The switchbacks are not bike friendly. <laughs> that was about a one month trip, but it wasn't a huge distance. And it was, I mean, both of our first times camping <laughs> really. Um, and we were using like old school, like I had written out all these on a spreadsheet on like an Excel spreadsheet and printed out. Um, so we we're using like legit cue sheets. <laughs> that will never happen again. <laughs> yeah, waking up every day, trying to figure out like, and I don't, sometimes I think back and I'm like, I had such audacity, but <laughs> we would just like, we'll figure it out, whatever. Um, and it always worked out. We pitched our tents it, like right off the side of the road a lot of the times um, with no planning. We would just be like, okay, we're too tired. We can't fuck anymore. This is where we sleep. And my friend and I, like, I I remember our relationship being very, like, conflict-filled. We were always fighting about everything, about when we were going to stop, how long we would take for a coffee break, how many miles we were going. There was never a point where our relationship was, like, warm and fuzzy and comfortable. But still, I still fell in love with biking. It didn't matter that our social dynamics were complicated. It was like, oh, being on this bicycle is what I want to be doing all the time. It was in 2014 that Marianne biked up the West Coast and then across the upper U.S. and Canada, all the way to Montreal. In the rhythm of living on the bicycle and on the road, every single day's landscape changes. I asked Marianne how she found home in things other than the bike. I think mostly in like what I spend my time doing, which is uh, when I'm not biking, I'm usually like reading or writing. And maybe that's a way that like helps me find something familiar. Okay, I have to play you a voice submission that I got because it fits in so perfectly right here. It's from Addie Paulette. Hi, my name is Adi Polet and I am from the Netherlands, from a town called The Hague. And besides my normal day job, I am a writer and avid traveler. Home to me has never been one place, but a certain type of possession. 
And I realized that that is not the minimalist idea or the fancy thing to say these days, but it's true. For me, home is wherever I find my books. Ever since I was young, books have been my home. I love to read, and so every year my, my mom and dad packed up the caravan, I would put in a few of my books and feel at home anywhere we traveled. And when I was moving out of my student housing, my boyfriend brought my books to his house, and just like that, I felt at home at his place and we'd moved in together. And these days, so long as I have my e-reader with me and it can be whipped out of my backpack, I can feel at home in any type of accommodation anywhere in the world. Home really is in my head. Home is in my hands and it's wherever I can have my books. It's nice. Like, oh, oh, my book's here. I'll just read that and all, everything falls away. I remember on my bike tours, my 2014 bike tour, I remember like falling in love with reading again. And when I wouldn't have cell service or when my phone was dead, instead of like scrolling on my phone when I ate meals, I remember like consciously making a decision of like, oh, every time I eat a meal, I'm just going to read my book. And that just felt so nice. I would often go to like McDonald's and, you know, use their Wi-Fi and like update my blog or write postcards or whatever it was. In fact, Marianne's Instagram handle is postcards from MAT. I was just like, oh, I don't need to, like, this is fine. This is my life now. This is normal. Like, this is normal life. <laughs> it's like biking, eating, reading, writing. <laughs> like, what else would I need to do? What other comforts would I really need if I'm happy right now? Movement, stillness, camping in a tent, renting a flat, or owning a home with a white picket fence. It's all real life. I biked across the U.S. in 2014 and then went back to living in New York City. And it didn't feel great to have, you know, be going from, like, a lifestyle where I'm outside all the time and interacting with people. I'm just being, like, showered with kindness a lot of the time. And people are hosting me and recognizing, like, the intense thing I'm doing. To then moving into New York City where, um, you know, riding the subways, felt unsafe at times or like being catcalled felt unsafe at times. And I moved to Alaska the summer after I biked across the U.S. It was the first time I was leaving the East Coast. It was the first time that I was like, you know, moving somewhere where I knew absolutely no one. And I think I like grew into myself a along the way a bit on that bike tour across the U.S. At the beginning of that bike tour, I had never said, like, never really come out to people in, close to me. I never told people I'm queer. And after that, started writing, like, more publicly and um, really came out formally <laughs> through writing. Like, I would write in my essays that I was queer, and then my family members wanted to talk to me about that, which was sweet. It ended up being super sweet and supportive. I have four brothers, and um, when the parents are out, there's not much they can do. I'm like the fourth in line, so I've got like a team of older brothers who's always holding it down for me. I think there's a lot of things that I, ways that I protect myself unconsciously, but I don't think I consciously knew why I was going to Alaska. I think I was consciously going because I wanted to chase mountains. Um, but I think a lot of that space and that time away from my family and that time away from my boyfriend who lived in New York, a boyfriend at the time who lived in New York, um, 
was like, oh, I need to like figure out my identity and what this means to me. I need to try on different words for size. I need to be with people who like don't know my past. <laughs> and yeah, now I look back and I was like, that was a really smart thing I did <laughs> was move somewhere where a lot of when they're in a time of uh, like life crisis or don't know what's next or don't know how to deal with a situation in their life. Um, Alaska's full of people who are like running away from home. When I moved to Alaska, like that was, you know, I would be on hikes with people and I would not immediately, but I'd be like, oh yeah, you know, I'm dating, I have a boyfriend, but I'm queer. Like just to like make it clear and just saying those words out loud was was new to me moving to Alaska. So I was able to redefine myself on my own terms in a lot of ways. And also just go outside a lot and go on mountains a lot, bike through, you know, bike around lakes or go to cabins on my own and just experience the outdoors in a way that I, that I was just had so much access. It's so easy to get on a mountaintop in Alaska. So in some ways I do feel like Alaska is a spiritual home for me, but then I also happen to be living here in 2016 and I was here for the uh, election. My workplace and being in Alaska as a brown person felt really like disturbing to me. There were a lot of, you know, comments, casual comments thrown around that were like racist and like a lot of tokenization that I was feeling and a lot of people justifying Trump's policies or actions because, you know, there's not a lot of diversity here and people just don't don't think about a lot of things. Um, so that winter was maybe the most depressed, I, depressed I'd ever felt since like I was in seventh grade, right? It was like, I felt super isolated. Um, and I felt like this place was hurting me that it like was not a place I could stay. So it's, it's hard. I don't know. I started that to say that like maybe Alaska is a spiritual home, but it's even that feels complicated. It was, it was just a hard time. And I, I can't, I can't not intertwine the things that I've experienced in a place with the place. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I don't know, it's messy. In 2017, Marianne left Alaska to go to India, meet up with her friend Daniel Bayliss, and they began cycling the country, starting in the north, in the Himalayas, down to the homelands of her family in southern India. I biked from the Himalayas as far as you can get from my true homeland in India to the to my homeland in India to Kerala towards the tip of India. Here's a small excerpt from the short form chapbook Asking for Elephants that Marianne and Daniel published after cycling around India. This is one paragraph from the essay Marianne wrote titled In Short. I would have loved for Marianne to have read this excerpt, but she happened to be off the grid as I was editing and finishing this episode. India is a country. It's the country that my parents come from, that colonizers tore up, that has been branded as a spiritual destination where you'll see the most unimaginable poverty and attain nirvana. Most of our travels were not in the place where my parents are from, and I lived in the space between learning about home and feeling totally apart, unfamiliar, estranged. Outside its borders, India is seen as one place, Within the map lines, India has many places with millions of realities colliding. 
When I left for the bike tour, I that was a big thing I was, is not knowing language and not being able to communicate. Um, and I guess it did make me, I remember there were times when like my travel partner, Danny would check out mentally because he didn't understand the conversation. And I would be like, oh, did you hear what they just said? And he would be like, no, like, why would I be paying attention? But there are ways that I'm like, oh, I understand how to communicate with like hand gestures um, and like body mechanics a lot. Like, I feel like even if someone is speaking Hindi, like a lot of the times I could understand what they were getting at, even though I don't understand like hardly a word of Hindi in a way that maybe like my travel partner didn't have normalized to him. There were a lot of times where I felt like India was explaining me to myself or being there was explaining me to myself. Um, and uh, some ways of that that happened were just like, we'd be sitting at a chai stand. We'd just be watching people engage and it would be like very physical, very loud, like laughing a lot, like people laugh a lot to diffuse tension, just like so enthusiastic. And there were times when Danny, my travel partner, was just like, oh, like you are from here. Like these are your people. Um, because I think there are ways that Americans react in ways that are like maybe a little stilted that I didn't realize. And there are ways that I've always thought of myself as like super, or people have told me that I'm, you know, so enthusiastic or like, I do laugh a lot and I do laugh to diffuse tension. And I, there were things, other cultural norms are like, you never say no to somebody. You never directly contradict somebody who you're trying to please. And caste is wrapped up in it too. Like you never directly contradict somebody of a higher caste. Um, but there are ways that I've learned to do those things even though I was raised in America. I like often don't directly contradict my elders. I'm a nurse and I, I find ways to make doctors think that treatment plans are their idea. You know, like I, I don't directly contradict a lot of people. I'm like, oh, well, what about this? You know, um, so there are ways that I was like, oh, this is actually really, really normal here. This is, these are ways that I've like, not grown up here, but these modes of interacting are like, like, so feel like me. Um, and that was a way that I really felt at home. Marianne tells me about pilgrimage in India. Like, that, it was really cool to witness this culture of pilgrimage in India. So I guess like for context, there are temples all over the country. There are like holy mountains all over the country. I don't know if this is true, but India feels like one of the most actually religious places in the world. And maybe that's why everybody wants to go there to find themselves. But like my family is Catholic and we're like deeply Catholic. Like we prayed every night before going to bed when we visited family in India, like prayer time involves singing. It's like 45 minutes. It's like a big part of your life. And there are temples all over the country, churches all over the country, mosques and like holy mountains, holy sites, places where like theoretically, historically, the gods existed or were born. Um, and people spend amounts of time going to them. And it's like 
okay, so you're making a, you're cutting off all your hair and you're making a pilgrimage to this temple to donate, to gift it to a god, uh, is like what happens at one temple. I don't know, it's just, it, yeah, I guess there are parallels to like how traveling and deciding to take intentional time to like be with yourself or figure some stuff out. Um, definitely parallels to like the way pilgrims exist in India. A lot of people, for a lot of pilgrimages, folks are wearing almost like a uniform. So depending on what temple they're going to, they might be wearing all black or all red or all yellow. Um, a lot of pilgrims travel by bicycle. So uh, you'll be seeing people going to these holy sites on their bikes, like land with just a tiny little bundle of clothes maybe wrapped in a tarp and a lot of them are just relying that on the kindness of strangers relying on uh, temples if you're on pilgrimage you can get housed for free at a lot of temples it's a sweet way that is like very accepted for people to like spend some time searching and seeking in Marianne's essay on pilgrimage in her chapbook, Asking for Elephants, she writes, It's funny to me, as an Indian raised in the West, when many Westerners seek a spiritual experience, they spend money on high-cost luxury meditation retreats. They expect to be taken care of. When most Indians go on a pilgrimage, they expect little. And yet, there is a practice of taking care of those who carry nothing but their clothes. Marianne also mentioned the contrast of being hosted while cycling in the West versus in India. There were a lot of, a few cyclists who hosted us uh, in major cities. And one thing that I found pretty stark was the way that when Americans, at least that I've interacted with a lot of the time, host you or offer to host you. They also want to know when you're leaving and they want to, they want there to be like clear parameters to the relationship that you're about to have of like being a guest and a host. And in India, people would welcome us into their homes and they would just be like, you're family now, like you're a cyclist and you're family. And like, you will have all of your meals, like, all, you know, one of our hosts, even if we weren't there and even if she wasn't there, she just made sure that the fridge was full of food and we never had to like buy food outside. Um, and that was like just such a way of showing love and commitment to this relationship of though it was temporary. And that really, really made me feel at home. Like I mentioned earlier, Marianne and I spoke as she was actually in the middle of a road trip slash book tour. And so she also had some thoughts on the trip that was currently happening. Driving my car from New York to Montana was fantastic. I love the road where you don't have any cell service. I love bike touring when you don't have any cell service. Like just thoughts in your head and where like I'll I'll grab my phone and I'll put on the voice activation and I'll get on the notes app and I'll just be like taking notes of what I'm seeing or what I'm feeling or like dreams it just gives you uninterrupted like dreaming time or processing time The places where I have the most friends right now are Anchorage and San Francisco. But then it's like a lot of my friends are entering different phases of their lives or getting married. And then like maybe there's less space 
physical space for me there if they like don't necessarily have a guest room or don't necessarily have somewhere for me to physically be in their lives it's like oh well how can I maintain these relationships and keep this feeling of home there when people are also changing stages of their lives maybe that's one reason I felt sad to leave Los Angeles I knew everyone was going to move on with their lives. I know friendships can bridge lots of time and space. But I also know that we grow and our lives evolve. I am a bird. For me, it seems natural that there are times to migrate and times for me to nest. It's a cycle that keeps me always searching for and building home at the same time. I tell Marianne this and ask her if she's ever felt the same way, if she likes nesting. I think I feel a lot better in motion. I I get antsy. I really like the idea of nesting. <laughs> so when I'm at people's houses and they've got all these like bookshelves, I get really jealous. <laughs> like this cool art on their wall. I'm like, oh wow. Or like just fancy ceramics or like kitchen supplies. Wow, if only I lived somewhere, that would be so great to have. And then I'll get in this like pattern of thinking, oh, it'd be so nice to live somewhere, to own a home. And especially when I'm in my hometown, I was feeling that way, like, oh, you know, my brother have a home that they can just live in. Like, I don't really have a place outside of my parents' basement where I can store my stuff even, you know? I sometimes crave that of just like a place to put my stuff. (laughs) Because the logistics of moving your stuff all the time are really complicated. (laughs) And you just can't own that much stuff. So like, I wanna buy a new bike, but do I really wanna be carrying two bikes around in my car? Like, no. So it becomes complicated. But despite, or maybe in spite of all of the the stress of traveling all the time of like, oh, where am I going to sleep? Or, oh, what am I going to do tomorrow? I love it. I want to read you one last thing of Marianne's. This is an Instagram caption that Marianne posted in January of 2018. This post was the photo that linked her bike ride across India to the snowy winter back in her New Jersey hometown. It's a photo out the window of an airplane. The caption reads, I'm back in the U.S., where people drive based on white and yellow lines painted on the black road, where gray sky and slushy snow greeted me on a melting warm day, where the sinks at JFK now have automatic dryers built into the faucet, and I can both wash and dry my hands at a single sink. My first meal was a Dunkin' Donuts bagel. My second was my mom's food, the best food. My parents drove me back to Princeton, and along the way we talked about each and every family member in the U.S. and in India how they're doing, who I saw, and who I didn't see. My dad went the wrong way briefly, and my attitude was all, it doesn't matter, because why get worked up about things that don't matter? We were together, regardless. I'm back in the U.S., but one of the many things that cycling across India taught me is that my life does not have to be limited to the United States. I've traveled internationally since I was young, but didn't prioritize my role as an international citizen. I got caught up in lifestyle and forgot that there's this whole fucking world outside the U.S. I think of myself and the possibilities for myself internationally now. My imagination has grown over the last few months. I dream about a life bigger than me. 
in travel, in life. I have a responsibility to educate myself, learn, travel, and share stories. I'm super thankful for the last four months, especially to the friends I've made along the way and the hosts who gave Danny and me a semblance of home, who treated us like family, who made us laugh and fed us with some of the best, most memorable food. The cyclist community that took us in in a way that I did not experience in the U.S., in a way that I really felt like I had extended family all over. You've made me feel like life has no borders. Possibilities for life can be built around humans and growth, not lines and limitations. To more. Hashtag brown girl goes home. On the way from Los Angeles to New York City, I listened to podcasts and the audiobook Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. I stayed with friends and family along the way. My grad school friend Sherwin lives in New Mexico. My family lives in Dallas. My friends Pat and Caroline live in Atlanta. My college friend Dania and her husband Richard live in South Carolina. My friend Parker, who I'd met in the middle of the woods years ago, lives in Virginia with his partner. All these people welcomed me into their homes, whether they had guest beds, blow-up mattresses, or couches. And then after staying with all these people, I'd be home. And my new, unfamiliar, take me there kicking and screaming, right by the train tracks home. But in between Virginia and New York City, while driving through Baltimore, one of the wheels of my U-Haul trailer came off, like literally popped off and went bouncing down the highway ahead of my car while sparks flew everywhere since half the trailer was now being scraped along the highway. What saved me? I'd listened to that little voice that becomes louder when I'm in motion. At the last minute, I decided to do this leg of the drive in the middle of the night. So there was no one else on the highway. I safely pulled over to the shoulder and called U-Haul. They got me a tow truck, a hotel room, a new trailer the next morning, and a small crew to help me crossload all my crap from the busted trailer to a not-so-busted trailer. If U-Haul asks you if you want the insurance, just spend the extra money. Do it. Best money I spent last year. And then I got back on the road and headed home. But the funny thing about motion is sometimes you don't know you're going uphill. The uphill's so slight that you can't quite see it. And you wonder why everything is so hard. And that's where I was going uphill into my next new challenge. A big thanks to Marianne Thomas, who talked to me for this episode. Currently, Marianne is working on a travel memoir about bicycling across India, traveling towards homeland, and leaving a nine-year relationship. In the show notes in the episode landing page, you can find links to her chapbook, Asking for Elephants, other podcasts she's been featured in, and some of the articles and essays she's written. Also, writing the script for this show takes me a bit of time, and there's a lot of music I listen to in the process that's copyrighted and I couldn't include in the show, but I turned some of it into a Spotify playlist, which you can find linked to on the show landing page. On the next episode of Unrooted, New York City, unpacking seasonal affective disorder. 
homesickness, and other fun things. We'll talk with someone who's also trying to make the East Coast home in the midst of being homesick. This show is hosted and produced by Julie Hotz. Last name is Hotz, spelled Um, sorry, uh, Hotz. You know, like, Hotz. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>